Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Guillaume Dangeville on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Good, good afternoon. I'm fine. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Nice to have you here. So your grandfather began Domain Bottling Volnay in the 20s. Yes, he did. It's, uh, it's an interesting story. In fact, he started a little bit by accident. Um, yeah, I don't know how, how aware you are of it, but uh, he was uh, very much uh, a leading uh, uh, force against the fraud that was going on at the time uh, with the negociant houses in Beaune. Uh, alongside him were people like Henri Gouge also uh, and a few others. And um, my grandfather was very annoyed by the fact that uh, his wines were being mixed with other wines uh, uh, when he was selling the wine in bulk or, or the grapes. And uh, he started suing the négociants in Beaune for that reason, saying they were not allowed to mix the wines and call them Volnay anyway. And of course, in retaliation, um, the négociants said, well, you know, if you sue us, of course, we're no longer going to buy your juice, your, your wines. And um, so he had no other option but to start estate bottling himself, because otherwise he had no a way to sell the wine. And so a little bit by accident, but also very visionary in a way, uh, he started estate bottling uh, in the 20s. Yeah. And around that time, it would have been like Gouge, estate bottling, maybe Rousseau. Gouge, Rousseau. Uh, I guess Griveaux was not so far behind also in the same, same sort of period, but very few. But that was basically the group. Yeah, yeah, a handful. And everything else was going to goes to be bottled yes. under different labels. Yeah. And what was the period like in the 30s for the estate? You know, after you start domain bottling, then the depression hits in the United States. What was the what was the progression into the 1930s and then the war era? Well, you know, in in the 30s um uh, my grandfather already was selling abroad. In fact, he was already selling into this this country right after the prohibition. Uh, I have some uh, very interesting archives at home, letters, uh, exchanges uh, in the 30s between his uh, importer then, uh, I forget the name now, and, and him about, you know, uh, ex- uh, you know when, when do we ship and for what price and everything else. And including during the war, 
where my grandfather used to also try to continue to do business, but obviously was unable to. The, my, my estate was in fact occupied during the war by the Germans. Uh, so my grandfather could no longer uh, do any business. Uh, but uh, he, his importer wrote to him uh, at the end of the war saying, I, I hope we can soon resume uh, business. Uh, and so there is a very long history of relationship between my family estate and the United States of America. We have been selling our wines in this country for the longest period, probably 80 years or so, um, which may be also the reason why we're so attached to it. I'm, uh, you know, I lived here, as you probably know, I lived here for a few years in this uh, in New York, and uh, we're very attached to that. And I, my grandfather was very keen on the United States. My father was too. And uh, this has been a long, long history. And that's why I think also there is such a, a wide uh, uh, and deep list of collectors here in this country that have old bottles um, uh, of my estate, sometimes older bottles than I, <laughs> than I own myself. And when did the estate change hands from your grandfather to your father? Uh, in, uh, in the 50s, in very early 50s. My, my father uh, was born very late in the marriage of his parents, uh, my grandfather was born in 1873, believe it or not. He should be my great-grandfather. So when uh, 49, 1949, 1950, he was already like 72 or 73, and he, he uh, told my father that he should come back. In fact, my father was studying business in Paris, and he, my grandfather asked my father to come back to the estate and, and run it. So my father arrived his first... Uh, his first harvest must have been 49, but with his father. And 50 again, his father was there. 51, he was on his own. My, fa my grandfather died in 52 and uh, I never knew him. What was your dad like? My dad was, um, was uh, a remarkable person, I think. Uh, I, I have yet to meet somebody who hasn't something nice to say about my father. He was a very righteous person, a, a very strong sense of ethics, and doing the right thing all the time. Yet he was a very shy person, a very timid person, and not a talkative person with his own family. He was, I think he was more outgoing with, outside the family circles than he was inside. Uh, you know, he's, he's on my mind still now, 10 years after his death, uh, uh, every week for sure, sometimes every day. He's, uh, he's a very present person, even though during his life he was... He was um, not so talkative, you know, he was not a hugely communicative person, but everything he said, he meant every word of it, and he was quite clear in his convictions. Uh, when I was a teenager, he told me um, that he thought it would be a good idea if I did something else rather than go uh, work with him right away after school. And uh, Does that mean you screwed something up at some point? And he's like, maybe it's a better idea if you, if you don't. No, I'm just kidding. No, nah, I'm just, you know, I, th I thought, uh, it, you know, it's very hard for when you're 15 or 14 years old to hear your father say to you, you know, you should do something else. Uh, you wonder why, but very quickly I understood why he did that. And it was the biggest gift he ever gave me, frankly, uh, because he said to me, you know, you can do other things. You, you have uh, other talents, other gifts. Uh, you should use them. And uh, so I did, so, you know, so I, I obeyed. Uh, and uh, like I said, I think it's the biggest gift that he ever gave me because I, I was able to have a life uh, that was 
uh, a very fulfilled life, you know, with, with plenty of different experiences, uh, as opposed to just go back and do one thing and only one thing. I was very privileged to have two different professional lives, being a, a, a banker, mostly for American banks for uh, close to 30 years, 25, 28 years, in fact, in total. So... Uh, um, very grateful to him for that. Very grateful to him for that. The only thing I'm ups, uh, great, not grateful to him is that, uh, uh, you know, maybe three, five years before he passed away, I started telling him, well, you know, maybe now I could come back. And he felt in great shape. Uh, and so every year he said, well, you know, you have another year or two. And so I took another year or two. And then, of course, he passed away uh, quite brutally. And we missed what we had planned, which was sort of an overlap period where he would still be around, even though I would be running the estate. But the transition, thank God, was uh, was possible because my brother-in-law uh, worked had worked with my father for 15 years before he passed away, and uh, and uh, when I, you know, when I decided to take over the domain, I said one condition is my brother-in-law continues to work with me like he worked with my father, and. And he said yes, of course, and then so because stylistically, it seems the wines are the same to me. Yeah. Well, you know, it's 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 of course uh, I take this as a compliment. Uh, um, you know, I was asked at the very early on by a, a journalist who will remain nameless. You know, what would you change? Uh, and I said, you know, the one thing I don't want to do is change anything. Frankly, I I, I love the wines that my father made, and. Um, my aim in life is trying to just as well, if I can do as well, you know, it's already for me a great achievement. Of course, now I have done a few changes, I've, you know, I've become comfortable and, uh, and I want to add my little uh, way of doing things. But on the whole, the style, I want to maintain the same style that's always been, I think, the trademark of uh, Dangerville, you know, on elegance and precision, purity. So, yeah, trying to... When did you start working more closely with the estate? In which year? Well, you know, I never really lost touch with the estate. You have to understand that. Of course, I, I live, when I lived in New York, is the only time when I missed a couple of harvests. But otherwise, I was back at the domain for every single harvest. And uh, I was uh, a shareholder, of course, already. And uh, so I followed what was going on. Uh, but I was not really involved. Uh, I only got seriously involved when my father passed away like i said brutally and you know from one month to the next he was gone uh then i quit jp morgan and i went back to school in in dijon uh, and i started running the estate from you know thrown in the deep end i think as you say in, in english so um um and from then on uh, that was that was my show and mm -hmm. that was 2003 2003 my first harvest is 2003 and just you, you need to remember that uh, this was the year of the heat wave. We started harvesting on the 25th of August. It was a very bizarre vintage, one vintage where absolutely you would have wanted somebody experienced. <laughs> uh, and my father had passed away six weeks before. So it was a, quite a rough start, quite a rough start. But and I'm happy with the O3s, uh, actually, uh, for, a, for a trial vintage. Uh, we've, we've done well. What do you think led to your success in O3? A few things. Uh, a few things led to success in '03. In the Reds, what we did was a couple of things to try and uh, compensate, if you will, the extra heat that we had. 
And so, for example, we before processing the grapes, we put them in air-conditioned rooms for four or five hours to cool them down because otherwise they would have gone in fermentation right away. So we cooled them for for four or five hours and then processed them. And also we shortened everything that could be shortened. We shortened uh, the cuvaison time, we shortened the time in barrel, and uh, we tried to extract even less than normal uh, in order to avoid the sort of a Syrah uh, character that some of those burgundies have in, in O3 because of the heat. And not, not trying to tire out the fruit in barrel, but rather get it into bottle. Exactly, exactly. So we, in fact, we did part of the Elvage in stainless, believe it or not. I was I was almost concerned to to admit it at the time, but now I can. <laughs> Ten years later, but uh, but we had a very short barrel élevage in in 03, and I think it was the right thing to do. And the other thing we did do also, by the way, one thing we did not do is acidify. Um, plenty of people acidified, and I was a rookie then, and. Uh, I had quite a bit of pressure to acidify. And there my brother-in-law was very key because he said to me, Guillaume, if I were you, I would not acidify. And it was the right decision for sure. It turns out that you've essentially stewarded the estate through a period of of perhaps global warming, but certainly some early vintages. You've mentioned to me that you found 03, 07, 9, and 11 all to be somewhat early harvests, early ripening. What was your approach in those years? The statistic is interesting. Uh, I have the dates of the harvests on the estate since the arrival of my grandfather in 1906. And I have only been running the estate for 10 years. And I have done the four most precocious harvests in the history of the domain since 1906. And you said the right dates, yeah, 03, 07, 11, and 09, in that order. The one before was 76, by the way. Uh, we, we started in 76 on the 13th of September. You know, the trick with early harvests, it's simple. Pinot Noir needs a very smooth end of maturation before harvesting, I think. Uh, it needs a cool, not too warm, but a lot of light and uh, some wind also in the which we normally have in September to finish you know it's, it's the final touch so to speak before the harvest when you harvest early you harvest after a lot of heat and the natural uh, alcohol content the sugar content grows very quickly and that is not good for pinot and also it makes choosing the right date for the harvest much more complicated than normal if you pick one and a half degrees every three days instead of one degree a week, it's much more complicated to, to pick the date when maturity is reached, including phenolic maturity. So that's the trick. That's the trick. Um, but otherwise, then you approach it, you approach it the way you know any other vintage you approach. It's, uh, it's just you have to live with, uh, with, uh, with the circumstances. You know, in 2003, with the first vintage, initially we thought uh, 5th of September, then two days later we said 1st of September, then we ended up starting on the 25th of August. And that means, you know, telling the team that, no, you're no longer coming on the 5th of September, you're coming on the 25th. It, it has a lot of implications which uh, don't meet the eye from the outside, but are complicated to, to manage. And let's set the scene a little bit. You're mostly associated with Volnay, and you have about, well, you inherited a little less than 12 hectares, 
and now it's a little bit more than 12 hectares, 12.5 in total. And where are the vineyards and what are they? The, the domain uh, is really completely linked with the village of Volney. And um, I, I would like to say that the first thing I want to advertise is my village before advertising my own estate. We are linked together. Uh, it's a wonderful village. It's, it's uh, maybe less well-known than others. And one reason for that is the size of the, of the vineyard of Volney is quite small altogether. The premier cruise of Volney is only 110 hectares, call it uh, 250 acres or so. So that's tiny. And um, I, I am uh, very privileged to have 12 and a half hectares uh, of Volney premier cruise today. They are in six different terroirs, appellations of Volney. And then I, make, I also make a, a, a Volney premier cru, which is a, a blend of three different uh, appellations that I own too small a piece to make a separate label of. But uh, the main well-known uh, terroir, of course, is Clos des Ducs, which is a monopole, which is, uh, I often joke saying, it's my backyard. It really starts at the back of the house. It's around the house. It's a beautiful piece uh, facing east, southeast, uh, very nicely located, a unique exposure really in, in Volney. Then uh, towards the north is Volney Fremier, uh, which is uh, very close to Clodeduc, but very different uh, in style, also different in soil, very shallow soil. You reach the, the mother rock uh, only after maybe one foot, a foot and a half of soil. And below that is Clos des Angles, which is a new label, first vintage uh, sold in 09. I already owned one half hectare, half a hectare of Clos des Angles, and I was able to buy the, another half a hectare in 2007. Um, and so I, uh, since it, it became uh, a full hectare, it became uh, possible to make a separate cuvee of it, and I decided to do so. It's a very interesting uh, uh, wine, which is very typical of Volnay. It's a, quite a delicate uh, wine, uh, typically, uh, not a huge structure, but very much in the style of Volnay. That's why I was happy to, to acquire that piece. Then if we move to the other side of the village, to the south side of the village, I own uh, a large chunk of Volnay Champagne, four hectares, roughly 10 acres. The total size of Champagne altogether is about 10. So I own four out of those 10 hectares. That's a very, very magical uh, terroir of Volnay. It's, the, uh, it's bang in the center of the, of the Premier Cru of Volnay. It's very typical of uh, what the Volnay Premier Cru is. I often use it as an example of what Volnay Premier Cru should, uh, should look like and taste like. Very uh, feminine in the style, very velvety, silky, always very curvy, uh, yet quite structured, but a delicate structure. Next to that is uh, Volnay Cairé. There also I was able to buy a, a tiny, tiny piece. 0.2 of a hectare, but uh, it makes me move from 0.45 to 0.65, which in percentage terms is not so small. Um, so I'm very happy with that. Cairé is, uh, is certainly uh, one of the stars of Volney as well. It's a, it's a magnificent terroir, very mineral, but also a lot of elegance and a lot of, uh, it's almost aerial, a wine, almost aerial. And then Taipier, Taipier, which is uh, up the hill from, uh, from Champagne and Cairé, quite near the woods that uh, dominate uh, Volney. Always a little bit more um, austere and masculine in style, Taipier, but normally a very long potential, very long life. Beautiful terroir. And then you make a bit of white, and it's Merceau Sentinel. <clears throat> Merceau Sentinel. 
Mercer Sentinel is, is an area, um, I'm sure your audience probably knows that, but just in case, you know, Mercer does not have Premier Cruz in red. And therefore, in that area of Mercer Sentinel, uh, when, when it's planted in Pinot, it's called Volnay Sentinel. Like Dominique Lafont makes a, a beautiful Volnay Sentinel in that area. My grandfather, of course, having so much Volnay, planted Chardonnay, but it's, you have to bear in mind when you taste and drink that wine that it's a terroir that would work well also for Pinot. Um, and uh, this Merceau Sentinel is very different from Merceau Charme or Genevria. You should not even try and think it's the same village almost. It's the other side of the village, north side of the village. All the others are south side of the village. And um, only Merceau Cra is also north side of the village. So what you want to do, you can choose two things. You can try and emulate the other Merceaux and then you'll lose. Or you can try and live with what you have, which is a terroir, which is very unique for a white wine, uh, and you go in that direction. And that's, that's the tendency that I've been using, which is going on the minerality of this, of this uh, terroir, going on the energetic, electric, almost electric uh, style of the wine. Um, so, pew, uh, you know, a lot of energy in the wine. That's what I try to achieve. Uh, uh, it's um, away from the buttery style, uh, voluminous style. My wines, my, my morceaux are probably less voluminous than you would expect from a morceau, but they gain in, uh, they're almost shabby style, I would say, if I wanted to ex exaggerate uh, the comparison. And speaking of vineyard sites that are somewhat near different parts of town, Freme is on the, the Pomar border of Volnay and Pomar, is that correct? Yes, Freme is at the border of uh, Volnay and Pomar. There is a Pomar Fremier as well, yeah? Uh, actually spelt differently, of course, to make things a little bit more complicated. Uh, but uh, yes, it's very, it's very near uh, Pomar, yet, um, yet it's a very Volnay-style um, vineyard. But here, you know, it, it's interesting because I, I believe, uh, whether it's implicit or not, I'm not sure, but I believe there are, there are, there are winemaking schools that are different from one village to the next. In other words, my, I own also a small piece in Pomar. If somebody from Pomar were to vinify that Pomar, they would come out with a very different wine from my Pomar. And vice versa, a Pomar person will vinify and make his Volnay wines in a Pomar way, which is going to be different from mine. And because, because you know, each village is used to specifics of, of its own terroirs. That's the beauty of Burgundy, you know, with all those different uh, appellations and the, cli the climat, the climat de Bourgogne. They are very specific and they are specific by village, even by small areas, but by village they definitely are. And, and therefore, the way that uh, knowledge, intellectual knowledge, is, is transmitted from one generation to the next is on the basis of those terroirs. Now, when, when one generation decides to buy outside, they tend to apply what they've learned from the prior generation to the new piece of land that they've bought. And, you know, that's, that's also one reason why I want to stick around Volnay. You know, I, I feel comfortable with Volnay and that's where I, I think I'm at my optimal in terms of winemaking. And also I'm a believer in the fact that you need to be able to walk to your vineyards every day. So it obviously it, it limits <laughs> how, far, how far away from Volnay you can acquire more, more, more land. 
So you see a, a through thread with your wines in, say, Lafarge, Pustor, or uh, Dimanti. I, I'm very. I think in style, I'm closest to Lafarge. Yeah, or vice versa. I mean, I think we have the same. Uh, Etienne also is quite quite the same style. Maybe Pustor is slightly different, but uh, yeah. And what do you think the style of the Volnay producers might be summed up as, if I were to try to understand it? We we often say that Volnay wines are generally feminine and elegant. I think that's that's what we that's what we aim for, and we we, we do that. We achieve that. I think one way to achieve that is to avoid over extraction. And I think most people in Volnay will avoid over-extraction. In fact, they want to gently uh, extract only the most noble parts uh, of the fruit. And that's really the general gist of it. When you talk about Volnay and you compare it to Pomar, let's say, which is the one next door, Pomar wines are you know, more muscular, muscular, more masculine and muscular than the wines of Volnay. And, and I think we, we we go in that direction, and Pomar goes in the other direction, and and therefore uh, they're they're quite different in style. Those two villages. I'm not saying which one is better. There's no. That's not the point, of course. Huh? But it's just the style, and that's a generalization. Of course, there are counterexamples and everything. But generally speaking, that's what uh, comes to mind. A lot of times in my own career, I've made what I think was probably the mistake of confusing elegant with light and especially in terms of Volnay where I've thought well it's a it's a feminine style it's an elegant wine so it's a light wine but when I taste your Clos de Duc I actually find quite a bit of power within that elegance and you said the Clos de Duc is in a different exposure what what does that mean and how how might that that affect what happens mm. First, firstly, you know, it, it is definitely true that elegance and lightness are, are two different things. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with a light wine anyway. But, uh, but I often use the term underwhelming power. Uh, I think it's very important that the wine has a direction. You can be elegant, you can be light, but if you're fluffy, it's terrible. You need to be directional and precise. It's like in literature, you know, when, when a writer writes and there's too many words, it's boring. A, a very synthetic sentence is much more powerful than a paragraph of, of bullshit. It, in a wine, in, you know, it's a little bit the same thing. You want to avoid everything that's unnecessary to provide some direction to the wine. And it can still remain... Uh, you know, an unassuming wine, but it's there, it provides you with the direction. That's, so that's the thing I wanted to say about elegance versus lightness. But on the specific of uh, Clos des Ducs, Clos des Ducs is a very unique exposure in Volnay. Um, you know, as often is the case in, in Burgundy, Volnay sits in between two hills, really. It's the Côte de Bonne, but there is kind of a small valley and Volnay sits in the valley and there, so there's a sort of a north hill and a, a south hill. North hill is where Claude Duc and Fremier is and towards Pomar. And then south hill is where Champagne, Taipier, Caire, towards Montly. Uh, but Claude Duc sits on the north hill. Uh, it faces east-southeast on that north hill, uh, which is unique in Volnay, really, because if you looked at the same exposure on the other hill, you'd already be in Montly. So... Uh, uh, it's it's kind of a it's a great terroir. Uh, well, it's very difficult to explain on the on the radio, but uh, it has a double slope. This uh, this vineyard, 
a slope facing really east and another slope facing southeast. And therefore, it, it's, it really gets the first light uh, in the morning. It gets the first ray of sun uh, right away in the morning. And also, uh, the other characteristic of this terroir is that it has a very deep soil combination of limestone and clay, uh, very deep, very, uh, very white marls uh, with a lot of stones that reflect the sun and a lot of underground springs as well. So there's never any hydric stress in that particular vineyard. Even in 2003, we were talking about earlier, which was such a dry year, we had a small spring which, is, which runs inside the Clos des Ducs, which was still running uh, and, and providing water. So, uh, so that's what really makes it uh, a very peculiar Volnay, which in a way is not the most typical Volnay of my range. You know, like I said earlier, to me, the archetype of Volnay really is Champagne. Clos des Ducs, because of its because of its power, because of its complexity, uh, because of its uh, spiciness also, in a way, I think is, uh, is less typical of a Volnay than Champagne would be. Uh, yet, it's, uh, to me, it's the most interesting wine, of course, because uh, it's the multi-layer of Burgundy, you know, the millefeuille, we call it the millefeuille in Volnay. Um, when you have a, a glass of Claude Duc in your mouth, you have a series of sensations that come one after the other. And that that comes vintage after vintage, year after year. We have the same sensation of a series of sensations uh, which are beautiful and, and most interesting. Um, so it's a, it's a magnificent terroir, for sure. You mentioned Champagne as being very, in a way, summing up what Volnay might typically be understood to be. You did some work in terms of the vineyard management of Champagne when you took over. What was involved with that in terms of the revitalization of Champagne? Champagne, like like I said, it's a it's it's a big part of the estate. It's four hectares out of twelve and a half of uh, Volnay Premier Cru, and this is the place where I did uh, many changes. In fact, uh, when I took over. Uh, like I said, not in the philosophy of winemaking, but there's plenty of details uh, that needed to be changed. One of them, quite simply, you know, everything starts in the vineyard, and I don't need to tell you this. And uh, the guy that was um, in charge of that uh, of that vineyard was really um, not of the quality that I wanted. He was always a little bit late, and the different works that needed to be done on the vineyard, and and would finish with the help of a niece or a nephew. So I was not entirely happy with, with the way that the vineyard was kept. And um, uh, so we decided to part company with, and, uh, and uh, replace him, which, uh, which was a very good decision, but as always painful because it's a difficult decision. And as always too late because difficult decisions are always postponed. But uh, nonetheless, I did that in 2006, I think it was, or five or six. And um, it takes a while, you know, to bring a vineyard back to where it should be once, if it had not been kept properly for a few years. It takes a while. And so we've been working on that with the repruning, with the proper pruning of it, uh, making sure that the yields were controlled and, and uh, all that sort of stuff, the replacements and everything else. So we did a lot of work in the vineyard of Champagne. That was the first thing we did. The second thing we did, which I think was um, probably just as important, was in the winery. Um, back in the mid-80s, my father was asked to, to be a, a test case for a new style of vats, which were horizontal vats, 
uh, stainless steel horizontal vats with uh, imagine kind of a propeller inside and the propeller was was meant to be doing the punching down so to speak you know and at Dangerville we never punch down it's pump over twice we, a day usually yeah, right pump over um, so we were you know my father agreed to do that but um, he never knew how, how to use the propeller and neither neither was i able to really understand you know what the impact of one minute or half a minute of that propeller would do on the grapes anyway it crushed the grapes it really it was not the extraction that we wanted um and i decided to get rid of those two because there were two of them uh, of those two horizontal vats which traditionally we would put the shampoo in and oh uh, i see and so so we went back to the normal classical open uh, vertical vats for shampoo with the normal proper care of pumping twice a day that made i think a huge difference also and you were probably allowed to do that because you had more quantity of grapes with the purchase so you could use a bigger vat as opposed to the oh uh, well you know shampoo also always is several several vats anyway um, because of the four hectares so we normally have at least three vats of, uh, of shampoo and about 2006 you also converted over to biodynamics or began that that change and what prompted that change for you you know, very quickly after uh, my father passed away, I um, uh, I consulted all of my friends in the area. In fact, I didn't need to consult because I have to say that uh, the amount of uh, proactive help that I received was just amazing. Uh, I will always remember Jean-Marc Rouleau uh, on the phone telling me how to use my press for my first uh, harvest of Merceau. And uh, many others, Michel Lafarge, Robert de Villain, they all offered their help. Uh, which was very nice. But um, I, I consulted also in that context, I consulted uh, my friend uh, Anne-Claude Lefleve, uh, whom I had known for a long time. We we're, were the same age. And um, obviously she immediately told me about her own experience of biodynamy and uh, really encouraged me to, to research that. And I, I did. And frankly, initially, my aim was more ecology than anything else. Um, I had the obvious conviction that putting chemicals in the terroirs was not a good idea for the terroirs long term, uh, that the soils were very compact and that it, was, it didn't feel right. And therefore, I, I was looking for a way to continue to treat the vineyard without chemicals. And obviously, biodynamy was, was one way to do this. And so my initial aim was that. And then, then I had this Difficulty internally because my brother-in-law that I was telling you about, he's a scientist by background. He's an agricultural engineer, as we call it in French. And therefore, he wants everything to be explained. And so he said to me, you know, if you can't explain to me how biodynamy works, well, then over my dead body, I'm not going to be playing ball with you on this. And so I, I was looking for consensus and therefore I hesitated for a couple of years. And that's why it only happened in uh, in the first season, uh, first vintage 06. Um, and I said to him, well, if you're so unconvinced, let's do it by stages. We'll do it piece by piece and we'll, we'll start looking look what it looks like and then we'll decide. But my initial aim was really ecology. And only later did I find that it had an impact on the wines also, although... I will immediately add that it's very difficult to pinpoint 
what the difference is because you, by definition, you cannot compare the same wine in the same vintage being biodynamic or not. But I, I'm, I believe that the purity of the wines that we have today and the energy in the wines that we have today is partially the reflection of having moved to biodynamy. But like I said, it was my second objective. My first objective was really protection of the, of the terroir. Give the terroirs in a better condition to the next generation than I have received it. Also, I will add there that you know I'm not pointing fingers to the first to the generation prior to mine. It's just uh, that they lived at a time when everybody was explaining to them that chemicals were the solution to every uh, difficulty. After the grapes are harvested, what happens at Dangeville? Um, you take them to the winery, and then first, the first thing you uh, you need to uh, to know is that, of course, even in the vineyard, there is uh, there is some sorting being done. So we we are lucky to have a team of uh, pickers. Uh, there is a nucleus in that team of people who've been coming for many, many years and know exactly what I want. And they are meant on the first morning to teach everybody what do you pick and what do you not pick. Um, but of course, it's not a perfect uh, science. And and when the grapes arrive at the winery, they are back on a sorting table uh, and they are being sorted uh, quite precisely. However, I, I also want to make a point there which... I think is very crucial. A, a Pinot Noir is interesting when it's complex. And it can only be complex if not everything is ripe in the same way. Clones is just a, is just a fake good idea. Because clones, one of the great things about clones, of course, is that it's, everything is ripe at the same time. It's good because it makes harvesting dates uh, easier to get to and everything else. But you lose an element of complexity which I think is crucial um, in making an interesting Pinot Noir. And now you have those electronic um, sorting tables, you know, they, they work uh, uh, with a screen. And the, and I, I believe, it's only speculation at this point, but I believe they are too extreme because they get rid of everything that's not exactly right, perfect. And that I think is, intuitively, I feel it is wrong. I cannot prove it, but intuitively, I think I gain by having berries of different maturation so we do we do uh, sort and i spend personally most of my time during the harvest around that sorting table because i think it's a crucial area uh, to work on and from the sorting table they get destemmed we destem 100 uh, percent at dangerville we've always done so uh, never changed and um I feel no pressure to change that. I, I, I feel it, it works well for my wines. And then from that distemmer, uh, they go into the vats. And there I have also changed quite a few things to, to make sure that we don't crush the grapes or the berries too much. You know, I've changed the system to get from the distemmer to the vats so that the, the, the berries get to the vats in the, in the best possible state. And then really nothing much happens. You know, the only thing I do, I want to do is I want to compare the temperature curve with the density curve and make sure that there's a, the proper relationship between those two. If there is a, devi a deviation that is too wide, then we will use uh, thermal regulation to correct that. But that's really the only thing we try and do uh, during fermentation. So you might make the temperature cooler. 
if it's necessary, you might can make it cooler. If it's necessary to heat up the wines, uh, to the the berries to to get fermentation started or anything, we we might do that too. But it's really uh, a correction. It's um, and then we. Um, uh, our cuvaisons last like everybody else two to two and a half weeks and at the end of the cuvaison we will reach maybe 32 degrees Celsius uh, around there uh, and then the wines are uh, pressed and um, go down to the cellar below by gravity um, generally speaking um, uh, the philosophy of uh, Domaine d'Angerville has always been to try and minimize human intervention uh, not in the vineyard in the vineyard we, we want to make it like look like a garden but once the grapes are in once the berries are in and the wine is uh, is in the barrel later then you know the less intervention there is from the human side the more the terroir can express itself and and at the end of the day the secret uh, of uh, of the diversity of Burgundy is all about expression of terroirs. And uh, when I have a range of the 2011s that we tasted today, for example, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's very nice to see that each terroir expresses itself in a different way in that particular vintage. And uh, that's why uh, um, we work, we work, uh, we try and, 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 and let the terroir speak and uh, not, not intervene too much. So you mentioned clones and how those can give negative effects. Is there, I believe, a, a Dongeville selection, a, sort of named after the estate? Yeah, I, you know, I don't, I, do, I don't, I don't mean to say clones have a negative effect. I think you lose, you you lose uh, some of the complexity uh, that uh, you know diversity is crucial. I think in uh, in making uh, interesting wines, uh, there is indeed a Pinot Noir called Pinot d'Angerville, which was a uh, the, the result of the collaboration of my grandfather and my father, so late 40s, mainly coming from Taipier and still used today, uh, which was a very fine producing Pinot, tiny berries, uh, beautiful Pinot style uh, that continues to be used today. Yeah. So would that be in your vineyards or throughout that region? Uh, throughout the region, it's it's available at uh, ATVB, which is the local um, uh, place where you can. Uh, so uh, it is it is used by uh, not just us. Yeah. Do you and we we've now gone back uh, to Massal uh, selection for for replanting at the domain. Uh, during the seventies, we my father used clones. But very many different clones, so so that to keep some diversity, but nonetheless he used uh, clones. Yeah. So. And how do you find the wines from the different Premier Cru's to age over time? Is it a uniform, or does Champagne perhaps come around a little sooner than Clos de Duc, or what's the life term, mm -hmm. long term? Well, generally speaking, uh, if there is a hierarchy, it's really. Uh, Claude Duc and Taipier that um, we, I would say would last the longest and would 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 certainly be more austere in the early years. Let's put it that way. Uh, Champagne can be very attractive very early on, like Fremier and, and Claude Angles also. Taipier can be a little bit more austere and tight, and so can Claude Duc uh, be in the early years. But Champagne, you know, uh, Champagne lasts a long, long time. I, I have a an interesting memory about that. Uh, two years ago, I was invited to do a, a dinner at Daniel Boulou here in New York. I think it was two years, maybe three years ago. And uh, two people had brought uh, 64s, one Claude Duc and one Champagne. 
And in fact, the champagne really um, stole the show that night uh, from the Claude Duc. Uh, of course, you know, there can be also questions of uh, storage and everything else, but but the power and the freshness at the same time of that champagne was really quite amazing. Maybe you could walk us through some of the vintages that you've worked. We've already discussed uh, 03 and a little bit of some of the others, but what was 04, 05? What were those vintages like for you up until up until now? You know, one of the big discoveries that uh, I, I knew it, of course, uh, theoretically, but I've discovered it on hand is is that there is there is there isn't two vintages that are the same it's just uh, every year is just another challenge of some sort o04 was often described as being very vegetal uh, in style uh, it's it was a complicated um, vintage also in Volney because we had yet another hailstorm that year uh, in fact, a very late hailstorm, uh, end of August, 21st or 22nd of August, which is quite late in the season. Normally, you're done with hailstorms at the end of July. So that complicated the uh, the final maturation. Uh, but, you know, on the whole, I'm quite happy with the O4s, and I think they'll come out uh, more and more interesting as the time goes by. Uh, O5, you know, O5, uh, I, I think, frankly speaking, this is the vintage that I will always remember with the most amazing aromas in the winery during the harvest. It was a splendid, splendid fruit, 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 amazing fruit. And uh, they remained, uh, it remained a beautiful fruit, of course, but now the wines are very tight, extremely tight, completely closed, in fact, I would say. Not just mine, I don't think. I think it's a general thing in Burgundy for the, for the O5s. And uh, it, it, you know, it leads to the question as to how long it will take for them to reopen. And uh, you know, there's that risk that we have another 76 on our hands, which uh, remained uh, very, very close for a long time. O6, I found... Um, uh, a difficult uh, vintage for, uh, for me to make. Uh, frankly speaking, uh, it's it's not my uh, my best success. Uh, 06, but people like people seem to enjoy it. Uh, uh, I found it quite difficult and uh, changing, and also uh, you never knew if it was o- over mature or not. Anyway, um, uh, a complicated vintage uh, is the way I remember it. Uh, I and I've. You know, the ones that I have, I've kept uh, aside for the time being. I, I think they deserve to wait. 07 is one of those very early vintages where very early harvest, you know, where we had uh, a very warm spring, very precocious flowering. We thought we were going to be harvesting in August. We started on the 3rd of September, which is very early. The wines are very uh, attractive. They're uh, they're very tender style. Not a huge personality, I will say, but uh, but they're very attractive in the sense that they're pleasant to drink. And when you drink a glass, you normally you would like another glass, which which by the way, you know that's what you want in the end. Um, 08, a very much a Pinot Noir style vintage, also uh, brings out the character of Volnay with elegance and fineness and direction, precision. I like 08 very much. Um, like I like 10s, like I like 11s. You know, they're not the same vintages, but kind of the same style. Um, generally speaking, when you compare them to a solar vintage like 09 or 05. And my general, and it's only a personal view, but if I have to choose between 
exuberance and austerity, uh, I prefer to err towards austerity than exuberance. I think it makes more sense for Pinot Noir. Uh, but it's, it, you know, austerity can be beautiful and attractive. It's not a boring austerity. It's just a clean, precise, directional austerity, like a monk. Um, so I would say um, uh, 08, 10, 11, that style, and then 09, 09 is a, is a magnificent vintage. There's no question about it. It's a vintage that was explosive when we first harvested it, and it refined itself a lot during the, during the élevage to become now very distinguished. Um, and um, I think the wines are going to be uh, magnificent for a long, long time. More recently, uh, you've had, as you've had in the past, some more difficulties with hail. What have the last few vintages brought you in terms of, of hail? Well, you're, you're touching, of course, a very sore point for Volney. Um, uh, we have had more than our fair share in the last decade uh, of, of hail, hailstorms. But 2012 was really, um, was really uh, the most horrible year. In fact, I was speaking to Michel Lafarge. We were talking about Michel Lafarge earlier, but I was speaking to him and he said he did not remember having such a difficult uh, year uh, than 2012. You know, in, we had the first hailstorm on the 30th of June, it was uh, the day that uh, the village has its um, sort of annual f- fair. You know, we call it Elegance de Volnay, where we invite people to come in and, and uh, taste the wines inside the terroirs. And then we have a sort of a gala dinner underneath a marquee, um, uh, courtesy of Pousdor, in fact. Um, and um, we were all sitting there about to sit down for dinner. So... Most of the 40 uh, owners of Volney were there with their clients and friends and journalists. And then the hailstorm starts. And imagine all that crowd of 150 people or so underneath the marquee and, and the noise of the ice cubes on the marquee, like a, a drum, uh, for maybe 10, 15 minutes. So we knew, we knew already that uh, you know the season was gone um so it was difficult to uh, rejoice after that uh, and of course that year also we had we had uh, a very strong mildew attack directly on the grapes so we combination of that and then august 1st comes or august 2nd and yet another hailstorm to finish up the job uh after which we had such a heat wave that uh, some of the grapes were burnt so it was a difficult season, volume-wise, a very difficult season. But quality-wise, magnificent wines, uh, which you can look at it either way. You can say, uh, wonderful, at least they're good. And you can look at it and say, it's really terrible that so little of it is made because the wines are so good. <laughs> so it's the half-empty, half-full uh, bottle uh, syndrome. Uh, but I'm very happy with the with the 12s. I think they're, they're, they're magnificent wines. But... Uh, and I'm not exaggerating, I am making a quarter of a crop in 2012. One quarter of a crop. Uh, so um, it makes you know everything complicated because even commercially, it's very difficult to... Everybody will be unhappy. You don't know how to allocate the wines to the proper hands and everything else. It's, it's a big complication. In 13, unfortunately, we had yet another hailstorm in, uh, in Volney, end of July. Uh, not as bad as 12 in Volney, uh, whereas uh, in, in many villages, 13 was worse than 12. In Volney, actually, 12 was worse than 13. Uh, so uh, we're going to be having maybe um, 
40 60% down a 40% of a normal crop uh in 12 in 13 as opposed to a quarter of a crop in 12 so we definitely need a big uh big and uh, beautiful crop in 14 when i read old books they sometimes talk about firing the cannon into the clouds to try to break up the hail does that still happen in the village of Olney? no no we haven't done that in in many years now we're looking at another system uh which we're going to put in place this year i think we need many villages to agree i think there's still one village that's still arguing about it but it's a new system i, I can't really explain it in simple terms but basically it's a system where you put on the on the ground, reservoirs of dust, small dust. The dust is brought up by the wind into the clouds, and uh, there's so much dust that the ice cubes um, they, they form themselves around a piece of dust, the cubes. And if there's if there's a lot more dust, each cube is smaller and therefore dilutes uh, the strength of the hill. Um, because it's the big hailstones that really rip through exactly, mines. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm hopeful that we're we're going to be uh, we're going to be putting that in place uh, this year. Um, but you know, just uh, there's no way that we can have so many years in a row that are so bad. Uh, so at some point it's going to turn the corner, and we're going to have a hail-free year. Yeah. You know, in my own job, for what it is, I mean, it's it's difficult to put any years worth of work and then watch it all get destroyed or get sizably destroyed in a 15-minute period. And I think that's probably true of a lot of jobs. I mean, it just doesn't happen that often where you put in a ton of work and suddenly it's not there anymore. Mm -hmm. Has that been an adjustment for you personally? I mean, it does seem like... It's, it's you know, it's, uh, it's terrible for me. Of course, it's terrible for people, uh, for winery owners. But frankly speaking, whenever something like that happens, uh, my first thought, and it, it may sound... Uh, uh, not genuine, but it is. My first thought is for the workers because they they put the work, they put the work, and you know, I'm behind their back the whole year around for for absolutely spectacular work, uh, exceptional uh, attention to detail and everything, and then all gone like you said in 15 minutes. It's terrible for them. Terrible. Uh, you can never really adjust to that. It's just. Uh, you have to accept it and you have to find the right words the next day to say, okay, we're going to try and heal uh, the vineyard so that it recovers quickly. How has the market for the wines that you sell changed over the years? Does it seem fairly steady since the days of Donjeville being a famous name up until now because it, you had the early start and a lot of exports early on or has there well, become <clears throat> a different market? Well, you know, we, we, like I said earlier, we, we, we have this long history with your country and that has remained a constant uh, thing throughout the years. In rough terms, one-fifth of my production goes to the US every year directly. I think there's more wine that finds its way eventually to the US, but what goes directly from the domain to, to the US is around 20% of my production. And it's been very constant. Then the UK market has also always been uh, very loyal uh, for a long, long time. I deal with uh, three agents. They are very high quality agents which, uh, with whom I have a 40, 30, 40 year relationship. Uh, it's, uh, it's really uh, remarkable. And of course, the big event is, is the growth of Asia. I was in Asia for the first time for the estate four years ago or five years ago. And I, I went through 
three different markets. I went to Japan, I went to Hong Kong, and I went to Shanghai. It was very interesting to do those in a series because you could see the progression. In Japan, the, the, the estate has been present for 35 years, roughly. There's collectors there, they know my wines, they know the vintages, you know, they don't need any uh, teaching anymore. They're really there to, uh, they ask the right questions and everything else. In Shanghai, it's the very beginning. I went there five years ago for the first time. I met a bunch of sommeliers, most of them uh, Westerners, very high quality, but you know, they are starting. And then Hong Kong is sort of in the middle. Uh, I've been in Hong Kong, the, the wines have been in Hong Kong for maybe 12 or 15 years now. And it's, you know, it's a very steep curve. Uh, the demand is huge. They ask for more wine every year. And uh, the audience is a, is a high quality audience with a lot of financial means. So there is pressure to, to, to bring more wine there. Conversely, France has been going down. Uh, there's, uh, uh, it's, you know, there's less wine consumed uh, in France and less wine consumed in the big restaurants, in the three-star restaurants, which was a traditional uh, clientele for Domaine d'Angerville for many years. Uh, so we continue to sell to all those um, to all those uh, three star restaurants, but they they buy less wine than they used to every year. And um, and also I would say probably uh, Belgium, uh, continental Europe, let's say globally is down. You mentioned O fives in general in the Burgundy region being somewhat shut down or closed in, and then we talked a bit about aging for the wines. But have you found uh, your own wines to have periods of where the fruit seems more quiet, where they sort of go to, to sleep. They're clearly good wines. They're clearly Donishville wines. They're clearly Volnay. But sometimes I feel like if I hit a certain vintage at a certain time, it might be a little closed in today, which is certainly something that I get with other Burgundies, red Burgundies in general. But maybe it's happened a few times with Donishville and me. Is that is that a characteristic of the wines? Is that something I should think about? Well, I I, uh, I have sympathy for what you say. Uh, I've had that experience myself. Um, I'm very curious to see if if my vinification style is going to make a difference to that. I find generally that the wines are more approachable earlier with my vinification than they were with my father's. Biodynamy probably is part of the explanation. Um, the work on the work on less trituration, the, you know, working on turbidity, which is one of my key objectives as well. And what is turbidity? Clearness? Yeah. Uh, to make it simple, uh, uh, that, the, that the liquid is very clean. Yeah. Perhaps that also has an impact. We will see. Uh, we will see over time. It's too early to judge. But no, I, I, it's, it's true. I think it's true for any wine, but maybe a bit more for us that there are some periods where it's more or less approachable and uh, you, have to, um, you have to remain patient and, uh, and uh, wait to open the next bottle. And that's, I, I'm, you know, that's, that's, where, uh, that's where communication with consumers is very important. And I'm still struggling to find the right way to communicate to the largest possible group Every time I, I drink a bottle from my own wines to tell them, well, I just drank this 96, you can drink your 96s. Or I just tried the 98s, they're not ready yet, you should wait. And um, of course, 
you know, all those social networks should help, but it becomes, um, I haven't found the right, um, uh, the right rhythm or the right way to do that on a regular basis yet. Well, oh, because when you say that, they ask if they can buy some more from you. Oh, like, well, uh, <laughs> oh I can buy some sixes from you, some 98s? Oh. Yeah. So you recently released uh, the Domaine de Pelican wines from the Jura, which was a, a bit of a departure from the Cote d'Or. Uh, how did you get involved with that project? Yes, well, um, it's. Um, uh, I'm really excited with this project. I, I um, in a nutshell, I, I really got interested because uh, I wanted to do something different, um, and and I got interested in Jura particularly because I, I got uh, I got it wrong on a blind tasting between a, a Chardonnay Jura, which I. I said was uh, I, I was certain that it was from Burgundy, and uh, that really opened my uh, uh, my mind uh, about Jura. And uh, I thought, you know, I needed to do some work to to really uh, understand um, uh, what could be done there. And uh, I, I was not able. I didn't want to do it on my own because it's it's a complicated region to understand from a geology standpoint and from exposure, wind, uh, uh, hydrometrics, and things like that. So. Uh, I asked uh, a friend of mine who is a geologist, uh, who is uh, from Jura uh, originally, but he's uh, worldwide known. His name is Yves Erodi, and uh, he does a lot of work also in Burgundy. That's how I got to know him. And I said to him, you know, Yves, I, I'm, I'm attracted by Jura, but I need help. What do you think? And he, he immediately offered help. And um, I started uh, investigating uh, you know how the Jura works, uh, how the what are the right terroirs, and what does it look like? And in fact, there's there's quite some similarities with Burgundy in terms of geology, but it's not the same, of course. But there's limestones, there's marls, uh, there's uh, fallen rocks, and you know uh, different things that look a little bit like Burgundy, um, but yet uh, it's not like a simple north-south uh, kind of coast. It's uh, plenty of different hills. And you need to be sure about the exposure, about the about uh, the altitude uh, and and the position on the hills and the, and everything else. So it took us a while to really get to to the right things because there there was quite a, a few things on offer. But Eve uh, Erodi would always tell me, well, you know, too much northerly, uh, too much wind, uh, too wet, uh, whatever. Finally, in 2012, two pieces of properties uh, came to the market that. Uh, that uh, he felt were worthy of my attention. And um, I completed both uh, acquisitions in, in 2012. Uh, there was one bit of five hectares, which was replanted 12 years ago, absolutely immaculate condition, biodynamy from day one. Um, uh, very nicely located uh, terroirs around the village of montigny les arsures which is where Pufnay and Tissot and a few other very famous names of uh, Jura are also located. Um, and so that's that's what's going on, and that's what's uh, being now released uh, to the U.S. market. And then separately, I bought five hectares in one piece from a guy called Jean-Marc Brignot, who was um, quite well known in the circles of natural wines. He was making uh, no sulfites, no natural wines, and um, had come to the point where he was really uh, bankrupt, so uh, he had to sell and... Uh, I was there to pick up the, the the land, but of course the vineyard was not in very good shape there. He had not uh, spent the right amount of uh, of work in the vineyards, and so I decided to uproot uh, the vast majority of that uh, five hectare piece 
take the time to do some hydraulic uh, works on it to uh, reduce excess water because you know the, it rains twice as much there as it rains in Burgundy. Yeah? So uh, the the problem of getting rid of excess surface water is a, is a crucial problem for 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 Jura. And then we'll be replanting this next year and producing in uh, 16 or 17. So, so far you've released a, a Chardonnay, a seven in, and then a blend of red grape varieties. Yes. Of course, my initial aim was, uh, was to focus mainly on whites uh, because I felt, you know, Pinot Noir was what I was doing in Volnay and why do Pinot Noir again in Jura? But, you know, on the first piece of five hectares that I bought, uh, a large chunk of it was, was planted in Pinot. And, uh, of course, I was not going to let that go. And, uh, but I was intrigued by the idea of uh, blends. You know, it's, it doesn't come naturally to a Burgundian to blend. Uh, and Trousseau and Pulsar were very tiny productions. And um, I had no option to put them separately. And therefore, I decided to try and blend to see what it was, uh, what it was going to bring. And uh, there was no scientific uh, approach to the blending. It was just uh, putting the entire production of Pinot with the entire production of Trousseau and the entire production of uh, Pulsar. And the result of it roughly is 60% Pinot, about 30% Trousseau, and the rest Pulsar, 5% Pulsar. But the result generally is interesting, I find, because it's a, you can sense, the, you can feel the Pinot uh, backbone, so to speak, but the two vines from uh, Jura bring uh, uh, some fantasy, some funkiness almost to, to the wine, which uh, which I find very very pleasant uh, and it's unmistakably uh, arbois, yet the Pinot Noir is back there to to provide the elegance. It's, it's it's a good combination. It works well. I found all three wines have a lot of freshness to them in a region. Sometimes we associate with deeper, more oxidative styles of wine, and and the red was particularly sort of fresh in the, in its style. And I wonder if. If Pulsar or Trousseau may have affected that, or if you think it's the the climat. Well, you know, I, I think you, you don't reinvent yourself that easily. You know, you, uh, I certainly have a Burgundy approach to uh, to Arbois, um, even though my aim and I, I made it clear to everybody that I met is I really want this domain to be a Jura domain, and eventually, you know, I will want to make Vin Jaune as well because. You cannot be a Jura domain without uh, making vin jaune, um, but it's 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 probably fair to say that my vinification style and the way we handle l'élevage and the way we handle the grapes at the harvest time, everything is is uh, is with a with a Burgundy approach, uh, and therefore oxidation to Burgundy is a. Uh, is is an evil so we we don't because we don't know how to control it the the jura people are wonderful about controlling uh, oxidation in a very positive way i don't claim to know how to do that i need to learn from my friends there from my new friends from jura there uh, but for the time being of course my wines uh, express the character of uh, of the winemaker i think in a way that's what you're finding in them was it different for you working with a grape like Savinin? Is it different than Chardonnay? Does it bring different characteristics in terms of production? Yeah, it's it's different. Is you know the ripeness is different. It it, it ripes normally later. Uh, it's 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 harder to be uh, you know to express uh, to express the aromatic characters and everything else. Uh, it's an interesting grape. Uh, in fact, I find it very very attractive to work on. Yeah. And I'm, you know, when I replant, I will certainly uh, replant 
quite a bit of Savania in more Savignon. And is the idea eventually that you might do separate bottlings of Pulsar, Trousseau, and Pinot, or will it always be a blend? I, I have I have no definitive answer to that question. I I don't like I said. I, I think for me it makes more sense to to continue to work on a blend, uh, simply because uh, uh, it will be difficult for me. I think to to not want to compare Pinot Noir, pure Pinot Noir from Jura, to pure Pinot Noir from Volnay, which I think would be a stupid thing to do. And therefore, I want to avoid it. Uh, so the blend is a nice answer to avoiding that. Uh, but we will see. You know, uh, with the new piece at the Grand Curoulet, which is a great terroir, magnificent terroir, now being worked on. You know, we never know. There's not so many people from outside of the region of Jura working with vines there. There's Rijar, uh, who's been there for a bit, but there's not so many people. I guess Canava has. Burgundy connections and that he used to work in Burgundy. Do you feel that now that you've entered into that area that the strong ties you have on the export market might change the market for Girard internationally? The first thing I want to say, I think it's very important to understand also that Girard is very close to Burgundy. Uh, you know, I drive in one hour from one estate to the other. It's very close. I can be there all the time. I can be there in one morning if I have to for two hours. It's easy. And uh, it goes back to my initial discussion about wanting to have vineyards of walking distance from home. Of course, this is not walking distance, but yet it's it's manageable from Volney, uh, very clearly so. So uh, that's, that's, that's very important. Of course, you know, I, I, I think it's... Um, it's a fact that the very large majority of the wines that are produced in Jura are, are consumed locally. I don't know the exact figure, but I think it's uh, probably close to uh, three quarters of uh, Jura wines being uh, uh, consumed uh, in the region, let's say, Franche-Comté. And uh, of course, Burgundy is exactly the reverse. We, we export three quarters or to 80% of our, of our production. And so there is an obvious... Uh, synergy, let's say, an obvious benefit, mutual benefit, which is that uh, given that I have, I sell my wines in Volnay to 35 different countries in the world. I have uh, very long links, very long lasting links with a lot of uh, importers in many countries. Uh, I'm very well served now here in the US with this uh, new venture with uh, Grand Cru Selections. And, you know, there's an element of trust and uh, all, all those clients uh, have been very... Uh, I am grateful to them for having given me a chance uh, and given them their confidence on the basis that it was my name on the label. And I think it, 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 one positive element of it is, of course, that all of a sudden there is some discussion about Jura wines. There will be more discussion on export markets because this production of uh, that I bought before was not sold elsewhere other than Jura, Franche-Comté or France, but no, not on export markets. And now it is on export markets and it will benefit the entire village of Arbois, I'm sure. And in the same way that I said to you earlier that, you know, I feel Volnay first and then Dangerville, in the same way I will say Arbois first, uh, Arbois second, Dangerville, Pelican third, you know, I, it's it, it, we we work together, and you know uh, the the style of the people of uh, of Arbois, I think, is wonderful. Uh, they're very genuine people. Uh, we get along very well now that we've we've come to understand each other, and 
and uh, there's no question that we can work together and and what may I'm sure one day we will may even be doing you know tastings together on foreign countries uh, bringing several different uh, winemakers of uh, arbois uh, to a different market and if we can spearhead that absolutely why is it called domain de pelican why that choice well, of, of course, I was looking for a new name because I didn't want to call it Chateau de Chavannes before, like it was called before. And um, I was looking for something that, that had a meaning uh, and also sounded well. Yeah, um, And the meaning came to us. In fact, uh, credit goes to Francois Duvivier, who is my partner in this uh, venture. Francois is the regisseur in Volney and uh, he's partner in this, uh, in this uh, Domaine du Pélican with me. Uh, and I'm... Um, I'm I'm really happy with this. I think it's a great uh, association. But he came up with the idea that uh, the pelican is 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 on the crest of the city of Arbois, you know, um, and there's there's no domain called Domaine du Pelican, even though the pelican is all over the city of Arbois as being on the crest. And even more fun is the fact that the legend says that the reason why the pelican is on the crest of Arbois is because now, mark my words, remember, uh, it's because in the year like 1497 or so, Maximilian de Habsburg, who was married to Mary de Bourgogne, who was the daughter of uh, Charles de Temeraire, um, the final, the last Duke of Burgundy, those two were married and they walked through the city of Arbois with a pelican on a leash. At the time, it was very... Uh, it was a status symbol to be walking around with an exotic animal. And the poor animal, uh, not used to the cold uh, weather of Arbois, died in the city of Arbois. And therefore, as a, uh, as a sign of compassion, uh, the city said, well, we're going to use the pelican as our crest. And of course, they, it gives me the sensation that uh, this is the link between Jura and, and, and Burgundy because Mary de Bourgogne was there with that pelican in, in Arbois. And you know it's it's a beautiful name. It works very well. Uh, I think it's a great uh, it's a great name. Are you happy that you chose to go back to wine? I mean, in a way, you had another life. You could have stayed a, a free man without the hail, without the constrictors of trying to find new vineyard space and looking at parcel after parcel that's not available or not to your liking. Yeah, obviously the answer is yes. I'm completely happy. You know, the, the, you have to understand that um, I was wired from day one to be back. Yeah, uh, of course. Like I said to you earlier, you know, I feel very privileged that I had two different professional lives, completely different from one to the next. And uh, you know, I I still meet uh, my old friends from J.P. Morgan with great pleasure. Tomorrow morning, I'm having coffee with a friend of mine here in New York. But, uh, you know, this this domain has been in my family for 200 years. I'm only the sixth generation. Um, I feel it's getting more and more complex for family domains to remain in family hands with the value of the land, you know, that creates, uh, obviously, difficulties with many children and all that sort of stuff. And thank God I was a banker for so many years. I was able to bring... Uh, you know, to buy out the other heirs in the domain to make sure that it remains in one hand, at least for one more generation. I'm not sure if it happens again in the next generation, but, you know, time will tell. We will see. Uh, for the time being, I, uh, I feel 
uh, I have done the right thing. I hope I have done the right thing. And uh, uh, it, it was not an obligation, Levy. Let me, let me make it very clear. Not an obligation. I went back there because I wanted to. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really happy. I think it's a, it's a wonderful way of uh, having a second uh, professional life. Guillaume Dangerville, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Guillaume Dangerville of Dangerville in Volnay and also Domaine de Pelican in De Jura. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.